The God of the Bible is a generous God who abundantly supplies whatever he knows we need when we need it. God uses the storms of life to stress and strengthen our faith, to reveal himself, and to draw us closer to him. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you would open your Bibles to John 6. John 6, this morning we'll be looking at the first 21 verses, Lord willing. We've been, as you know, in the Gospel of John now for several months. Uh, Last week we completed chapter 5. As you recall, John 5 begins with the miracle of Jesus healing a paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda. Following the miracle, there is, of course, a discourse with Christ and the Jewish religious leaders, and he is making a claim to be equal with God. And the Jewish leaders, of course, respond to that by rejecting Jesus and then plotting to kill him. Interestingly, today's lesson, the chapter 6 of John, parallels that exact sequence. Uh, There's two miracles we're going to look at today, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water, and then Jesus is going to have a discourse with the crowd about his uh, deity and the fact that he is the bread of life. And like the leaders rejected Jesus in John chapter 5, the crowds are going to reject Jesus in John chapter 6. So the nation at this point in time turns their back on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory. Today we're going to look at the two supernatural signs that Jesus did that John records to demonstrate his deity. Remember that John wrote his gospel for two primary reasons. Number one, to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus is God. That was goal number one of the gospel. Goal number two was to persuade the reader of the gospel to place faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and thereby obtain eternal life. So that's the twofold mission of the gospel. John, out of literally hundreds of miracles Jesus did, only records seven. Seven miracles to document and demonstrate the deity of Christ. This is going to be sign or miracle number four. We've looked at the uh, water to wine at Cana. We looked at the healing of the uh, nobleman's son. We looked at the healing of the paralytic at Bethsaida last week. Today, we'll look at the feeding of the 5,000. So if you would open your Bibles to John 6, verse 1, let's pick up the narrative. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. This chapter opens, chapter 5 and chapter 6, open with the exact same phrase. It says, after these things. Now that refers to an indeterminate period of time between events. Uh, The events in chapter 5, if you recall, occur at a feast of the Jews. John says, after these things, a feast of the Jews. Now, we don't know which feast John's necessarily talking about in chapter 5. There's really only two possibilities. One, if the feast in chapter 5 referred to the Passover, then there is an entire year span of history that took place between John 5 and John 6. However, if in chapter 5, the feast they're referring to is the Feast of Tabernacles, then the time frame between chapter 5 and chapter 6 is about six months, less time. We know that Jesus' ministry lasted between three and three and a half years. So the the events in chapter 6 probably took place two years after Jesus launched his ministry. So chapter 6 is about 24 months after the beginning of his ministry, and about one year before he went to the cross. Sometimes we draw the conclusion that just because chapter 6 is after 5, it occurs in sequential order. Some gospel writers write things in sequence. Some gospel writers organize their their writing by themes, and it's not necessarily sequential. 
we're, we're going to draw the conclusion at this point in time, at least tentatively, that there's about a year space between the events of chapter 5 and the events of chapter 6. John doesn't spend a lot of time on those events. Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend an enormous amount of time on those events. Jesus in chapter 5 is down south in Judea in Jerusalem, southern Israel. He's no longer in Jerusalem. He's now up north in Judea in Galilee because the Jewish religious leaders are trying to kill him and it's not yet time for him to go to the cross. So he travels north to Galilee. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record that Jesus spends about 16 months minimum, probably 16 months to 18 months, ministering in northern Israel in Galilee. And they record a great deal of his, his Galilean ministry. Jesus' birthplace was Nazareth, but he doesn't spend time ministering there with one or two occasions. His ministry headquarters is Capernaum. So if you look on the Sea of Galilee and you go to 12 noon and you just pop back to about 11 a.m., that's where Nazareth is. It's on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus spends time traveling throughout the villages and uh, towns of this region, healing, casting out demons, preaching about the coming of the kingdom. Now between chapter 5 and chapter 6 of John, quite a few events have occurred. A couple of the most significant is John the Baptist has been beheaded by Herod Antipas. That occurred between chapter 5 and chapter 6. It's not recorded by John. It's recorded by the Synoptic Gospels. Secondly, Jesus sends out his disciples two by two in pairs. Six pairs of disciples. He is now inaugurating their ministry. And he sends them out to go to the regions in Galilee to heal, preach the gospel of the kingdom, and cast out demons. Now, in chapter 6, they have returned from that inaugural mission trip, and they are going to report on their missionary uh, ministry to Jesus. That the crowds are pressing in on them so much, Matthew 11 records, they don't even have time to eat. So they're exhausted. So Jesus says, we need to get away to a secluded place for a time of rest and debriefing. So they get into a boat, and they row to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're going from Capernaum, and they're going to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, when you look at the Sea of Galilee, on your west side is Capernaum, Tiberias. That's the populated side. The east side is much less populated. It is much more uh, desolate. In John's time, the Sea of Galilee was called the Sea of Tiberias. Since the main city on the sea is Tiberias, it's probably around 9 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock in the morning if you look at a clock face there. And it was named after Tiberius, the Roman emperor, who ruled from 14 to 37 AD. Now, when Jesus and his disciples are rowing across the lake from west to east to get to a secluded place where they can have some private time, there's a large crowd in Capernaum that sees them go and they walk around the north side of the Sea of Galilee. They're going from Capernaum, and they're walking over the top of the Sea of Galilee to follow Jesus, and then they're going south down to this particular location. And verse 2 says, A large crowd followed Jesus because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So they were motivated to follow him because he was healing many, many sick people in Capernaum. Now, this crowd, like many people today, are motivated to use Jesus to fix their problems, right? Lord, I got troubles, trials, you know, situations, and I really need you to fix this, right? Give me what I want and give it to me right now, and I'll be very, very happy, right? Sounds like our prayers sometimes. By the way, sometimes we really don't know how selfish we are, but if someone actually recorded our prayers, we would go, wow. It's really all about me, isn't it? You know, that tends to occur with us sinful human beings whom God loves despite ourselves, right? And it says here in John, the first couple of verses of chapter 6, he went up on not a mountain, he went up to the mountain. So it seems to be a specific location, and it seems to be a place that Jesus has gone to before with his disciples. We're not sure exactly where that is, but when you read the context of this chapter, it sounds like Jesus and his disciples got to that location and they might have had some alone time before the crowds come. Look at verse 5. 
Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, they're walking over the north side of the sea following him. Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. Here's the principle, our first principle. People often try to solve their problems without Christ and only trust him when they come to the end of their resources. Let me repeat that. People often try to solve their problems without Christ and only trust him when they come to the end of their resources. You know, when there's no money in the checking account, I guess we better pray. I'm I'm being only somewhat facetious here, right? So Jesus is on the mountain with his disciples, and he sees this large crowd coming to them, and it's morning. And he knows they've got a problem. He knows this crowd is going to be hungry later in the day. And feeding them in this desolate location is a non-trivial problem. It's a major problem. So, he asks his disciples how they would solve this problem. Now, he already knows, and he wants them to discover that from a human standpoint, this problem is impossible. It is non-solvable. And he wants them to learn to trust him to solve this impossible situation. And because he is God and completely in control, the scripture notes, John notes, Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do later that day. Now, the four Gospels, in order to get the picture, you need to look at this narrative from all four Gospels. This is the only miracle in Scripture apart from the resurrection that is recorded by all four Gospel writers. So it's obviously significant. And if you look at all four Gospel accounts, the Gospel records four solutions to this insolvable problem. How are you going to feed 25,000 people at a desolate location, right? Jesus asked the disciples, what are you going to do? And Mark 6, verse 35 to 36, records that the disciples' solution was, send the crowds away, tell them to go to the surrounding villages and buy their own food. The disciples basically said, look, their hunger is not our problem. We are tired. We just got back from ministry. Send those people away. Get rid of the problem, right? We need a break. Can you relate to that? Have you ever been tired enough when someone calls you go, not going to pick that phone up, especially when you see the number? You know, that's going to be an hour or whatever, right? (laughs) Something like that, right? I'm tired. I don't want to be hassled, right? The truth is Jesus loves and cares about needy people. And his disciples didn't. I identify with that. And Jesus knows they don't care. So he gives them a command. He says, you give them something to eat. Now that's an impossible command. Jesus then hones in on Philip and says, Philip, how would you solve this problem? And you say, well, why Philip? Well, Philip is from Bethsaida, which is the nearest town to where they are. Philip knew the lay of the land. He'd know what the resources were, right? And Philip doesn't think in terms of bread. He thinks in terms of money. He's a good student of bread prices, though, because he says it's going to take about 200 denarii. That's about eight months' wages. One person, a denarii is a day's wage. You worked for a day, you got a denarii. So 200 denarii is 200 days' wages, about eight months' wages per person. He says it's going to take 200 denarii to buy even a little bread, maybe one bite for each person here. And the disciples didn't have that kind of money. And even if they did, the bread wasn't available, right? This was a rural location. There's only a few villages on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It's not populated like the west side. And it's already late in the day. And bread that was baked this morning has sold out a long time ago. Now you think to yourself, well, if they'd only have a supermarket. Do you know how much bread it takes to feed 220,000 people? Your supermarket didn't come close to having that much bread, right? So Philip is calculating. He gives a spreadsheet to Jesus, says, here's what it is. He's a good accountant. But he calculates without Christ. Now, it says, John says, Jesus was testing him. 
He's testing not his bread knowledge, he's testing his faith. What's he going to say? And of course, he failed the test. Here's what's remarkable. Philip, along with all the rest of the disciples, could have recalled the many miracles that he and the disciples have seen Jesus perform in the past. As a matter of fact, that very day, they probably saw Jesus heal hundreds of people at that location. Well, how do we know that? Well, Matthew 14, 14 tells us that Jesus spent all that day healing the sick. And many of the people who came out to follow him were sick. It's not like they had an MD with lots of diagnostic equipment. Back in the day, if you were sick, you lived with the sickness. So Jesus had a reputation for healing. They were going to follow him, right? Luke 9.11 says that Jesus taught the crowd all day about the kingdom of God, about salvation. And Mark 6.34 records that Jesus did that because he felt compassion for the crowd. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And the reality is you now know many people in your life that do not know the good shepherd. Is that not true? And they are lost. And you know they're lost because you see the decisions they make, and their decisions are foolish and more foolish and stupid and stupider. Not because they're not bright people. They don't know the shepherd, and they need to know the shepherd. And Jesus says, you, child, need to have compassion for them like I have compassion for them. The disciples are indicted for their lack of compassion, and he's talking to you and I. Philip should have responded, Lord, you're God. Nothing's too difficult for you. You created the world from nothing. I've just seen you heal 15 people with my own eyes. You can feed this crowd. That's not what he said. Verse 8. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Here's the principle. Whatever your problem, give everything you have to Jesus and let him do whatever he chooses with it. Whatever your problem, give everything you have to Jesus. Give everything, don't take it back, give everything you have to Jesus and let him do whatever he chooses with it. Now, Mark 6.38 tells that Jesus told the disciples, Go into the crowd and find out what food resources are there. Mark 6.38. So Andrew goes into the crowd and he comes back with what? One lad, five barley loaves, barley crackers, two pickled or dried fish. And you look at this and you say, how can there be 20,000 people and no one packed a lunch? I guess it's the same reason people run out of gas on the freeways, right? I mean, you know. Now, this lunch was pretty typical fare for poor people. Fish were plentiful. Remember, they're on the Sea of Galilee. There's lots of fish. Barley is grain for animals and very poor people. Wheat was reserved for the wealthy. Wheat is such good grain for bread because it has yeast and it rises. Barley, it's very difficult to make barley rise, so it's going to be more like a cracker. It's going to be more unleavened. Andrew, interestingly in Scripture, is a good model because he's always portrayed in the Bible as bringing someone to Jesus. Andrew. He brought his brother Simon Peter and says, we found the Messiah, right? He brought some visiting Greeks who said, sirs, we want to meet Jesus. Now he brings a lad with his lunch to the Lord. But Andrew, like Philip, like all the 12, he's overwhelmed with this task. He seems almost embarrassed at having brought so few resources to such a large problem. You know, I don't think we understand really the context of this. 20,000 people is the most people anybody ever saw in a crowd in their entire life and probably then some. You know, we have stadiums. Well, you put 50, 60,000. They didn't have stadiums, right? You didn't have that many people. So for you to have that many people in one location was pretty unusual. I mean, you had to be in the Roman Colosseum or something to get a similar sized crowd. This was a huge crowd. And I can only imagine what the other 11 disciples thought of Andrew's contribution. You got 20,000 people, you bring 
five barley crackers and two pickled fish. Really? Right? So the disciples now have come up with three solutions, all of them non-workable. Get rid of the problem by sending the people away. Buy food that is unavailable with money that we don't have. That's useful. Or, well, we got five barley loaves, five barley crackers, two pickled fish for 20,000 people. Now, Jesus has arranged for this problem to be unsolvable by design. It sets the stage for him now to perform the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, apart from his resurrection. Have you ever thought about the fact that God arranges for you and I regularly to face problems that are unsolvable? By design. So that we will stop trusting our brilliance, quote unquote, and start trusting him. And the fact is, most of us won't trust him unless we have to. That's pretty cold, pretty hard. But that's really true. And that's, I struggle with that as well. Impossible situations are designed by God to cause us to turn to Jesus in trust and surrender everything and our problems to him. And some of the hardest things to surrender to him are what we want for the people we love. Called children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, right? Job situations, health situations, you can fill in the blanks. Surrender it all to Jesus, which means don't take it back at two in the morning. Give it back, right? Let him have it. It belongs to him. And let him do whatever he chooses with it. Because his plan for your problems is superior to your plan for your problems. Would you agree? Say yes like you mean it. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Now, here's scary. Despite all of Jesus' miracles, they've been with him now for two years. They've seen him do hundreds of miracles. In this particular passage, there is no record in any of the Gospels that any of the disciples expressed faith that Jesus could solve this problem. After two years of seeing live miracles, God's people have spiritual Alzheimer's. We do. We so often forget what the Lord has done for us in the past. And then we go, oh yeah, you did that in the past, but God, this time it's different. Really? Has his power gotten weaker in the last 12 months? No, he's still God of all. Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Here's our principle. The God of the Bible is a generous God who abundantly supplies whatever he knows we need when we need it. Let me say that again. The God of the Bible is a generous God who abundantly supplies whatever he knows we need when we need it. Now, parallels here are kind of interesting. You can obviously see Psalm 23 here, right? The good shepherd makes the what? Sheep lie down in green pastures. Well, they're on a probably a mountainside, and it's green. And he organizes the crowd into groups of 50s and 100s. And you say, why would you organize the crowd into groups of 50s and 100s? Well, if you're going to serve food, it helps to have aisleways to walk in, right? If you're going to go deliver food. So you, you get people in groups of 50s and 100s, so there's aisleways for the disciples to distribute the food. Jesus knows what he's going to do. By the way, it's also easier to count people when they're in groups as opposed to just a big group of them. And I never thought about this. One of the commentators I read said, seating them imposes order on a hungry crowd who might turn into a mob when they see free food. If you think people don't have sharp elbows, try and get in line to buy tickets for something or gas lines or whatever. People have really sharp elbows. 
and this is free food. I mean, this could turn into a riot really quick. So Jesus said, sit down and stay sitting down. We'll bring the food to you. You're not going to come and get it from us, right? So it's fascinating that in Scripture, there's this great economy of words, and every word in Scripture has purpose. There is nothing in Scripture that does not have purpose and meaning, and it says there was much grass in that place, which is utterly interesting. That would indicate that it had been raining, like it's been here doing lately, right? Which means probably sometime in the spring after the rains. Now, if you look at Israel weather, the cool rainy season in Israel was from October to April, and the hot dry summer was from May through September. So, John also says in verse 4, the Passover was near. And you go, why is that significant? Well, Passover usually takes place in March-April, depending on it. It floats around a little bit, depending on the calendar. But at any rate, this was probably March-April, rainy season, grass near the Passover. And, of course, the grass was comfortable to sit on. Matthew 14 notes that the crowd was 5,000 men, and Matthew says, not including women and children. And you know, if you have men and women, then you get children, right? So there's probably, I would say, pretty conservatively 20,000 people in this crowd. So Jesus takes the cakes, the crackers, if you will. This is not bread in the sense, it's more crackers. And the pickled fish, and he blesses the food. He gives thanks to God for providing it. And if you look at this, you have to be incredulous. Jesus is standing in front of 20,000 people, five crackers, two little sardine fish, and he's blessing it and thanking God for the wonderful meal 20,000 people are going to have. And you haven't read this story before. You're part of the crowd, and you're going, we've heard this guy can do miracles. This is amazing, right? And it says, then he broke the loaves, broke the crackers, and kept giving them, underline that in your Bible, kept giving them to the disciples to give to the people. Now, if this is not an understated miracle, I don't know what is, right? Remember, when the wedding guests in Cana drank the wine, they didn't know it was miracle wine. They just thought it was really good stuff, right? So it was an understated miracle. The same Jesus who Scripture tells us spoke the heavens and earth into existence with a word, now creates bread and fish out of nothing to meet the needs of the people. Because as he broke it, it kept multiplying. He was literally creating the food as he was passing it out. Can you imagine what it tasted like? I mean, this is bread from heaven. Made by the Creator on the spot. This is like manna in the wilderness. These crackers did not come from grain that had been grown in dirt with bugs. Right? These fish had never swam in the water. He created them in his hands out of nothing and passed them out. And I would have been there with my video camera. I mean, <laughs> how is this working? You know, I mean, They're literally appearing in his hands as he's passing. And I'm thinking, 20,000 people, one pair of hands, you would have to be cracking the whip pretty good here to get that much food out in a period of an hour or so to serve these people. If I was the disciples, I would have been right there. Of course, he had them working, right? I wonder what the nutritional labels would have said about this divinely created food. I mean, what's the contents, right? You know, the amino acid count must have been off the charts. And it says, everybody ate like it was Thanksgiving. They ate to the stuffing point. They ate to the passing out point, right? The word here for filled is the word fodder or foddering. You know, an animal eats fodder, right? They go to the trough and they eat fodder until they are full and there's no more room. Animals generally don't go on diets, have you noticed? They eat until there's no more room room to put it. Well, that's the picture here. They're eating until there's no room. From five loaves, two fish, 20,000 people eat to the stuffing point. And Jesus, of course, wastes nothing in his creation, and he wastes nothing in his miracles. He told the disciples, pick up the fragments, the uneaten uh, bread and fish, and they filled 12 baskets. 
which there were how many disciples? How many tribes of Israel? Interesting. This was visible proof how big the miracle was. You could see it. Not only were you filled, but you could see the fragments left over. He also didn't let anybody clutter up his mountain with trash. So next time you're planning on littering, think about it. The interesting principle is, when you trust God to use you to meet the needs of others, he will always provide for you. Right? Think about this lad. He's got his lunch, and Andrew says, here's the lunch. I'm sure they didn't take it away from the boy. I'm sure he volunteered it. And he's not sure at this point in time he's going to get lunch. And he turns out eating far more than five crackers and two fish, right? When you trust God to use you to meet others' needs, he will abundantly pride for your own needs because God is not a frugal God. You do not have a cheap God. The God of the Bible is generous beyond our understanding. Now God, Christ, could have called down manna from heaven and just rained it on him. But he involved people in this miracle. The disciples in the crowd not only saw the miracle, the disciples actually distributed it and everybody ate the food. Interesting lesson. Instead of complaining, always give thanks to God for whatever he chooses to provide even if it only is a can of sardines, right? I mean, you got it this morning. Most of you, probably your shower worked, at least I hope it did. You know, you had heat, right? The electricity worked. We got rain yesterday. Thank God for the little things. If you see the little things, you'll be grateful for the little things. The Lord's Prayer says what? Give us this day the next year's bread says, give us this day our daily bread, and if I went to your refrigerator and your pantry, there's more than just a bread for a day, right? Thank God for that, right? God wants to use us as channels for his grace to bless other people, and we need to trust him to do that. The disciples didn't do that. God used them anyway. Verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, quote, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Here's the principle. Jesus never comes to people on their terms. People who come to Jesus come on his terms or not at all. Jesus never comes to people on their terms. People who come to Jesus come on his terms or not at all. Now they use the term the prophet. Moses had written in Deuteronomy 18.15 that a prophet like him would arise in Israel. God was going to raise up a prophet like him in Israel. You should listen to this prophet. And of course, the crowd sees the parallels between Moses and Christ. Moses fed the people manna in the wilderness, right? We'll talk about that next week. And he led them out of Egyptian slavery. So this crowd says, Jesus fed us in the wilderness and he can lead us out of slavery to Rome. Pretty good deal. So they saw the sign that Jesus performed, but they missed its meaning. They wanted an earthly king who would set them free from Rome. And they interpreted the sign as being one of earthly power, and that was the end point. Jesus did the sign to document his deity to demonstrate that he was a heavenly king who came to earth to set people free from sin and death, and they completely missed it. By the way, the disciples missed that routinely, right? We would have too had we been there, trust me. So this miracle occurred during Passover. I want you to understand something about Passover. Passover is not just a, a religious holiday for the Jews. It's like the 4th of July for Americans. It's a very patriotic day, it's a very nationalistic day, it's a very political day, and it's a very religious day all in one. It was a rallying point every year for very nationalistic zeal, and this, of course, is what motivated the crowd to seek an earthly king. But the crowd's priorities were not God's priorities. The crowd's priorities were very selfish, very materialistic. They wanted a king who would do what they wanted them to do when they wanted them to do it. Heal us. Feed us, free us from Rome, I'll tell you what they wanted. 
They wanted the welfare state. Free food. No more work. No taxes to Rome. Has anything changed? What do people want today? Same thing. What will they do? Worship the messianic state, which promises them something for nothing. I'm not going to get political here. I'm just saying human nature is human nature is human nature. It's the nature of sinful people across the board. What does Jesus do with their demands? Mark 6.45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Now, Jesus compelled his disciples to get in the boat because they were in danger. The crowd was so carried away with this stunning display of divine power, they planned to take Jesus by force and anoint him to be king over Israel. Many of Jesus' disciples wanted that exact result. They wanted a military political messiah uh, who would fulfill their earthly ambitions. When Jesus, in just a few short chapters, goes to the cross, it's not that long before the cross that they're arguing about who's the greatest. And James and John say, Lord, Command that we're going to sit on your right and your left when you come into your kingdom. Now, we want to be near political throne. I mean, God is going to be in charge through Jesus, and we want to be there to rule over everybody, right? They mistook it as well. And Jesus knew that they were susceptible to be influenced by this crowd, and he said, get in the boat, row to the other side. Now, the reality is Jesus is going to rule and reign at his second coming in the Messianic kingdom. But the first time, he came to die as a suffering servant to pay for the sins of the world. Second time, he's going to rule and reign. So Jesus dismisses the crowd and sends them home. This I find interesting. They believe he's the prophet. They believe he's got God's divine empowerment. They've seen him do miracles, and they think they're, by human might they're going to force him to be king. You're going to force God to do what? You're going to force God to do nothing, right? So it says that he dismissed them. And you're thinking to yourself, how does that work? Well, this is the same Lord of glory that said to the sea, what? Be still. When God in the flesh says, go home. 20,000 of them went home, right? By the way, you know this. Jesus is not your genie. He's not your Santa Claus who does what you want. He's God. If you want a relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father, you come on his terms, not your terms. What are his terms? He says, I love you. Your relationship with me is broken due to sin. If you want a relationship with me, you have to turn away from your sins Turn to me by faith, trust in my payment for your sins, follow me and obey me because I am the Lord. We do not have a relationship with equals. Yes, I've adopted you in my family, but I am your king. You are my subject. Yes, I am your father, but I have authority because I am God. We have to come to Christ on his terms and even as believers, when we come to the Lord, yes, we can come with intimacy because we call him Abba through the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of our sins. But he also says, come to me with fear and respect and awe and holy because I am holy. Right? So Jesus left the crowd's applause, left the public space to be alone with this heavenly father in order to pray. I find this rather interesting and also very instructive. He came to earth to fulfill his father's will because he loved his father more than he loved the crowd. He didn't come to cater to a fickle crowd who just wanted the full tummy and another miracle, right? And you say, Jesus obviously prioritized prayer. Now, if Jesus was a political messiah, this would have been the time. The crowd wants to make me king. I've got 20,000 fanatics here. We can march on Jerusalem and I'll be anointed king. But that wasn't his agenda. His agenda was to do his father's will, which is to come and die for the sins of the world. 
So he rejected the crowd's applause, the fickle crowd's applause, and went alone to his heavenly Father. That is a very good example for us. Most of us would be well served to go through a dopamine fast, turn off your electronic devices which feed your dopamine hits to your brain, turn them off, get rid of the phone, and spend a couple hours alone with Jesus in silence. I dare you to try it. Two hours, silence, with Jesus. He's got a lot of things he'd like to talk with you about. But there's too much noise in our life to listen. Our hearing aid is cluttered with static of this culture. Pull the plug on a regular basis. Make time for the King of Kings who loves you. His love is better than life. There's nothing you're going to learn from this culture that comes close to what you can learn from the King of Kings, the lover of your soul. Take a fast from the electronic noise. Turn the daggum idiot box off. Have silence in your house so you can have silence in your heart. Now, Jesus is praying. Who's he praying for? Well, he's praying for the crowds who are looking for the wrong things. He's surely praying for his disciples. They're in the middle of a lake, and he knows they're in the middle of a lake, and he sends them into a storm. And he did it on purpose. He did it to rescue them from the greater danger of being influenced by the crowd that wanted to make him earthly king. He wanted them to have a heavenly perspective, not an earthly perspective. Verse 16 begins the second miracle. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started across the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Here's the principle. God uses the storms of life to stress and strengthen our faith, to reveal himself, and to draw us closer to him. God uses the storms of life to stress and strengthen our faith, to reveal himself and to draw us closer to him. So the Sea of Galilee is more of a lake, actually. It's about 13 miles long, seven miles wide, seven and a half. And it's a very shallow lake. It's only about 200 feet deep at its deepest point. But it's the lowest freshwater lake in the world, 700 feet below sea level. A few miles south, you have the Dead Sea. That's, of course, salt water, and that's 1,300 feet below sea level. So it's surrounded by all these mountains, and the top of these mountains contain cool, dry air. You're 2,000 feet above sea level. When you get down to lake bed level, or lake surface level, it's almost semi-tropical, very warm and very moist. So you get elevation changes, temperature changes, and pressure changes, and it can produce some pretty crazy weather. You get a westerly wind blowing, right? Westerly wind blowing across those mountains, and it blows that cool, dry air 2,000 feet up, and they blow it down on top of this warm, moist air right above the lake. And you can get some really violent storms. And you do get some wave action because this is a very shallow lake. Deep lakes have a lot more shock absorption for wave action. You get a shallow lake like Lake Erie, for example, you get a lot bigger waves than what you get on deep water. So this is a very shallow lake, so you get some wave action here. Now... In 1969 and in 1992, and I think in 16, I can't remember, they had a lot of, of um, wind and waves. They, had, they recorded 10-foot-high waves on the Sea of Galilee. Now, of course, that's going to swamp a lot of small boats, and that's unusual. On a small, shallow lake, most of your wave action is probably between one and two feet. But John records that a strong wind had stirred up the lake, indicating that there were waves that were battering the boat, and the disciples were rowing into the wind, right? Into the wind. And they had been rowing against the wind from sunset till somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. So they'd been rowing for nine hours, and they'd made about three miles. Normally, of course, the lake's only about seven and a half miles across. 
You should have been there hours ago. They're in the middle of the lake, rowing into the wind, and Jesus is on top of the mountain praying for them. And he knows they're struggling, and he lets them struggle. You know what that means for you? He will let you struggle sometimes if he knows that's what you need at that point. And you will say, God, if you'll love me, you'll stop my struggling. And he says, no, because I love you and I'm planning for eternity, I want you to struggle. I want you to trust me, right? What did the disciples need to learn? They need to learn to trust him in the storm, not just when they have the spectacular miracle of free bread, right? Warren Wiersbe says, the feeding of the 5,000 was the lesson, but the storm was the examination after the lesson. Did you learn anything, right? Now, Jonah, of course, was caught in the storm due to his disobedience. The disciples are caught in the storm because the Lord sent them into the storm and they obeyed him. And I can hear you saying, God, I've done everything you told me to do. How come my life is falling apart? How come I'm in the storm? I don't know all the reasons, but he does. Because he's the master of your boat, right? So Jesus is praying for the disciples on top of a mountain. It's almost like a picture of Christ now in heaven praying for his church on earth. And we're in the middle of storms. I mean, we're in the middle of cultural warfare. And one day Christ is going to return and we will be safe home in heaven, right? So it's kind of a picture of that. So the crowd is walking around on the north side of the sea and they're going from the east side to the west side. They're going back to Capernaum because he told them, go back home. And Jesus wants to get to the west side of the lake because he's got an appointment in Capernaum tomorrow. Scripture records there's no boats on the east side of the lake. If Jesus is going to walk back, he's going to have to walk with the crowds on the north side of the lake to get to Capernaum. Guess what? He doesn't want to be with this crowd right now. They just tried to crown him king, and he said, go away. Go home. So what does he do? He walks across the lake on the water to get from the site back to Capernaum. He's got an appointment tomorrow. We'll look at that next week, right? It's another demonstration of his power over nature and his divine nature because he's now supernaturally overriding the law of gravity. For the Lord, walking on the water is walking, it doesn't matter, walking on land, it's walking, right? So between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., fourth watch of the night, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., he comes on the disciples and they've been rowing for nine hours. They're struggling against the wind and the waves. They see him walking and they conclude he's a ghost because, of course, flesh and blood can't walk on water. As it gets closer, it says they become terrified. You know, put your depends on terrified. And Jesus calms their fears. And what does he say to them? Profound words. It is I. Do not be afraid. The Greek translates, I am. Do not be afraid. You know what that means. The presence of Jesus is the solution to every problem faced by the Christian. The presence of Jesus. You want a solution? It's not what you think it is. It's the presence of the Lord is the solution no matter what the problem is. There's no reason to fear when Jesus is near. And he is what? Always near. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, Matthew 14 records that when Peter saw that it was Jesus walking on the water, he says, Jesus, command me to come to walk to you on the water. And, of course, we laugh at Peter. Let me tell you, this guy had some faith. There are some big waves out there, and he stepped outside the boat, and not one of us in this crowd would probably step outside the boat with six, four-foot waves or three-foot waves or whatever. And he had the good sense not just to get in the water. He says, Lord, command me to come, because if you command me to come, I know I can walk on the water. And Jesus said, come. And it says, he began to walk toward the Lord. As long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, he stayed on top of the water. But he looked at the waves, and he got scared. And he began to sink. And he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached down, picked him up, put him in the boat, and reproved him. He says, where is your faith? 
Peter is a very good picture of what happens to us when we stay focused on Jesus. And what happens when we take our eyes off Jesus? If there is fear in your heart, I promise you your focus is not on the Lord. Fear is a call to prayer. When you are fearful, what do you do with your fear? Bring it to the Lord. Lord, I'm scared. I'm terrified. I'm afraid this is going to happen. Bring it to him. He will deal with it. He will give you peace in the middle of your storms. Jesus is always seeking to strengthen the faith of those who follow him. So there's lots of lessons for this particular couple set of miracles, but one of them is we are to trust him and not ourselves. We are to bring all our resources to him no matter how puny, and he will pour his power through us. By the way, God only works through weak people. And you and I are weak people. He can work through us. That's the only way he works. He wants to use us, pour his power through us to save people from sin and death and bring them into a loving, eternal relationship with God himself, and he's called us to that end. Okay, let's review before we do prayer and praise. First of all, people often try and solve their problems without Christ. When I say people, I'm talking about you and me. And only trust him when they come to the end of their resources. Number two, whatever your problem, give everything you have to Jesus. No matter how small, give everything you have to Jesus and let him do whatever he chooses with it. Number three, the God of the Bible is a generous God who abundantly supplies whatever he knows we need when we need it. Remember, my God shall supply all your needs, not all your wants. When will he supply them? When he knows we need it, right? Number four, Jesus never comes to people on their terms. People who come to Jesus come on his terms or they don't come at all. And he is a very generous God, but he says, I'm God, you come to me on my terms. I want to save you from your sin. And lastly, God uses the storms of life to stress and strengthen our faith to reveal himself and to draw us closer to him. You will not grow closer to the Lord if you don't have storms. When you get to heaven and I get to heaven, we will thank God for the storms far more than the good, peaceful, prosperous sense. Because it's during the storms that we're intimate with the Lord Jesus Christ. I love you all. Thank you very much. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.